And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, 6.06 on this Tuesday. That means it's technically speaking Tuesday. So we'll get into why uh, we're not actually picking up pennies in front of a steamroller, right? Well. <laughs> I got a tweet last, uh, I got a, I, I guess it was a little over a week ago, one of our followers uh, tweeted me, and because we were talking about the fact that we were getting a money flow buy signal, and we needed to add some exposure to portfolios, and we were doing that slowly. He says, don't understand why you're doing it, you're picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Well, we'll talk about a little bit, a little bit about that this morning, and kind of go through that. Um, outside of that, other news, of course, uh, yesterday... Bitcoin had a huge rally. It was up like 20, 25% yesterday. So big rally in Bitcoin yesterday, kind of coming back from the depths of despair, right? Everybody was just freaking out. Of course, we talked about this yesterday that cryptocurrencies had had basically a major bear market, right? They were down about 50% from the highs. And and we kind of touched on a little bit about why, you know, the adoption of cryptocurrency ultimately as being an actual currency itself is, is going to take longer because of the of simply the swing of volatility. And we kind of went through some of that yesterday. But um, after the market opened yesterday morning, of course, markets had a nice rally yesterday. And of course, part of that is that risk on attitude, people kind of piling back into cryptocurrencies again, trying to buy the dip. And well, you know, we'll see how this plays out. The cryptos are going to be down a little bit this morning, not surprised after a huge rally yesterday. Um, but again, was that the bottom for cryptocurrencies yesterday? We'll see. Um, but it's, it's a little bit too early to tell. Typically, when you see these types of volatility swings and you have big declines in assets, they typically bounce um, and then they're going to retest lows or maybe even set new lows before the actual bottom is in. So, again, you kind of got to, you know, the, the one thing how bear markets work in any asset class over time. Uh, whether it's stocks or whether it's bonds or cryptocurrencies, is that typically to find a bottom in anything during a correction, you've got to wash out all the uh, all the exuberance, right? All the people that were chasing the cryptocurrencies, and you've got to get rid of all that. And we did see a little bit of that, right? I mean, if you kind of watch Twitter feeds or you kind of watch what's going on in some of the cryptocurrency kind of uh, feeds and Wall Street Reddit bets, I mean, people were like, you know, cryptocurrency sucks, I'm out, right? That's the kind of thing you want to see to actually establish a bottom. And so, we, you know, we haven't seen that in stocks in um, quite some time, about 12 years now. So, again, we're getting very long in the tooth for a stock rally as well. Of course, stocks are very elevated from long-term means. We've talked about this before. Valuations are very high. And the one thing that we haven't done, and this is why when we go back and we talk about the March 2020 correction, a lot of people say, well, it was a bear market because it was down 20%. Uh, 20% declines are extremely arbitrary in nature because that was something that was actually put into place, um, you know, 
back in the 70s and 80s when markets didn't deviate from long-term means. We didn't have these massive runs in asset classes. But you know what happened in March of 2020, yes, we had a correction, but we never broke the long-term trend of the market. The market remained elevated that entire time. And if we take that chart all the way back to 2009, you can see that trend better. But you know the, the point here is that, that even though it was a larger than 20% decline, it was still just a correction because we never changed the direction or trend of prices, which is what denotes a bull market or a bear market over time. And we ne also never reverted valuations. And most importantly, we never got real negative psychology. In fact, uh, at the bottom of the market in March of 2020, when people should have been you know, thinking about getting out of asset classes and, and being very bearish on stocks and don't want anything else to do with it. They were actually just piling back in as fast as they could because of Fed stimulus and a lot of monetary support that was going on at the time. So, again, we haven't really gone through that reversion process in the markets yet, and we, w we eventually will. Um, there'll be something that happens that, that causes that to occur, but, you know, that could be some time out, right, uh, in the future. So, you know, years, months, quarters, whenever it is, it'll occur, but whatever triggers it will be some credit-related event that we're not even aware of at this point. And, and again, we'll deal with that when we get there, but it's, this, is, this is kind of part and parcel about how markets work over time. So what's, what's witnessing in Bitcoin is part of that process as well. And again, every market goes through this um, for one reason or another throughout history, and we just never know what causes it. Or why, or why that occurs. So, um, but real quick to the markets itself, you know, we have been talking about this uh, money flow buy signal for the S&P. Haven't been able to get it. It's just been a real grind here downwards in that signal now for the last couple of months, or well, actually last month and a half. Markets really not going anywhere during that period of time, just this consolidation that we've been talking about. Finally, yesterday, a very clear break of that buy signal to the upside. Um, also, the MACD getting ready to turn up here as well. So we're about to have a confirming buy signal as well and, and suggest that asset prices are going to continue to push. I mean, we're almost back to all-time highs for the S&P. So a breakout here to all-time highs certainly will not be surprising here over the course of the next week or so. Now, importantly, there's probably not a lot of upside here. Um, as we've been talking about before, even though we've had this consolidation process, markets still remain very elevated from long-term moving averages. So that limits the potential upside. Um, could we have another substantial increase in asset prices of, you know, say five or 10%? It's certainly possible. Anything, is, anything in markets is possible, but probably a rally up towards 4,200, 4,250, likely about all we're gonna get out of this particular rally. One of the bigger concerns, of course, is that going back here over the last really um, year and a half or so, we haven't had a 5% correction in the markets, and we've talked about this as well, um, since August and September of last year. So that's a very long stretch without a 5% correction in the market. So very likely we're still expecting probably sometime this summer uh, that 5% correction. And that will probably be a much better opportunity to actually put capital to work in the market. So again, um, you know, as we, as we talked about here over the last week or so, we've been adding exposure to portfolios. That's been working out okay so uh, so far so for uh, up to this point but again probably looking at a bigger decline sometime this summer 
providing a much better opportunity to increase capital exposure as well uh, to equities, at least for now, as things continue to kind of move forward. But again, um, we're watching this buy signal very quickly. And as, we, as we've talked about here, the NASDAQ triggered it first, and that's really where the outperformance has been. The NASDAQ actually broke above the 50 and the 200-day moving average. I'm uh, sorry, <laughs> I wish so. The 50 and the 20-day moving average yesterday. So very clear break here. This sets the NASDAQ up for a rally back to all-time highs. Uh, the NASDAQ has been outperforming the S&P during this four-day rally that we've had here over the last few days. Again, that signal now about halfway through its reversion process. So as we've talked about before, these signals move very quickly. And that's why I'm suggesting that there's not a lot of upside here in markets. Um, retest of highs, potentially set minor new highs, certainly a real possibility here. But again, not a tremendous amount of upside here. And that's going to also start to coincide, as we've been talking about here, with this weekly sell signal. And that's the, the bigger concern. When the dailies and the weeklies tend to align together, you get these bigger corrections in the markets. You now have a weekly sell signal getting ready to trigger as opposed to a daily buy signal. But as we get through that daily buy signal, it will align with this weekly sell signal. And that's where we tend to get these 5% corrections or more that we've seen previously. So we'll keep you up to date on this. But again, this is why we're saying there's a confluence of these events that are going on that suggest, at least right now, that we'll have a bit of a correction this summer. And so we want to be a little bit cautious about how much risk we're taking right now. So again, enjoy the rally here, but use this rally to rebalance risk in portfolios, take some profits. When we come back, we'll talk about, you know, picking up pennies in front of a steamroller and, and why um, we do, how we do and what we do and, and, and the things that we do to do that. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. I'm your host, Roberts. Be right back. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Shows this morning it's uh, six seventeen. If uh, you know we were talking about yesterday that you know the government's getting ready to release all this uh, UFO data, mm-hmm. right? And uh, <laughs> Wisconsin police have now told their residents, please do not call nine one one if you see a string of lights in the sky. <laughs> uh, that's, so apparently the uh, Starlink satellite train—that's the the, yeah. the group of satellites that provide. Uh, internet service to rural areas so as it circumvents the globe it shows up as a string of lights in the sky <laughs> they don't want people <laughs> calling 911 saying there's ufo invasion so it'll melt down you know i would just if see if i was on a radio station yeah. there in like wisconsin as soon as i knew that was coming over i'd start playing orson wells uh, <laughs> more of the world <laughs> yep 
<laughs> just you know, just cut into the radio broadcast and just start playing War of the Worlds, and then <laughs> people go outside. Anyway, and that's why you're not on the radio. I know, in exactly. That's why they won't let me on. You know, this is a good thing too. You know, seven percent of the population does not use the internet. According really? to a recent survey, seven percent of the population does not use the internet hmm. in the U.S. Interesting. Yeah. And that probably means that when the end of the world comes, there'll be 7% of the population that actually survives. <laughs> so, or at least won't know there, about it. There's hope yet that <laughs> the intelligence, there is intelligent life on the planet. You know, and then that the funniest thing is that we now have access to all this information, right? I mean, you want to know anything about math or science or, you know, anything, right? It's, it's right there on the Internet. It seems like we should be the, the smartest race ever in history. And we've gotten dumber, <laughs> especially in the U.S. We went from the top three in math and science and, and education to like the mid-30s. I mean, Estonia has better education than we do. I mean, <laughs> most, how is that possible? Most people don't even know where Estonia is. I know, right? That, how is that even possible? You have the world map. On your hand, in your phone, how are you more stupid than you were a decade ago? But boy, can you insult somebody you don't know in a <laughs> nanosecond. Exactly. You can block people for just no reason whatsoever. <laughs> Sorry, did you get your feet wings hurt? I'll block you. <laughs> anyway. Stuff that goes on in the mornings. Uh, all right, a couple of things. Back to, back to serious enough here. Uh, okay. <laughs> Inflation. One of the, the big kind of concerns here right now is that, you know, this inf inflation issue that's coming and whether or not, you know, this is a sustainable rate of inflation or if this is a transitory inflation. Now, the Fed keeps coming out saying this is transitory and the Fed's probably right. A lot of this has to do with supply chain bottlenecks and temporary um, positions in the economy where there's, you know, as we kind of reopen, there's a demand for goods and services, et cetera, uh, that's causing a demand to outstrip supply. So there's also the other problem that when we look at measures of inflation, we're about to see a very, very sharp spike in inflation. I mean, like people are going to be saying, oh, hyperinflation is back. Well, you got to be careful with part of this is because of the way we measure inflation, it's a year over year rate of change. And we're now in the phase of this year where we're comparing to the very deflationary blowout of last year when we shut down the economy. So when you compare year over year growth rates in inflation, they're going to be huge. And that's just because of this way that we calculate inflation. Then there's also all the problems of how we actually calculate inflation, right? We've talked about that before as well. But look, we've, we've had massive increases in used car prices, big increases in home prices. You know, that's all filtering through to inflation. And so we have this kind of this, this combination of events where we have a surge in prices due to a lack of supply. And then we have this year-over-year -year comparison, which is inflating, at least on the surface. It, it appears to have be this inflation phenomenon. And, of course, everybody's running out going, oh, we're back to the 1970s. Very different environment that we have now versus the 1970s. Now, having said that, 
doesn't mean the outcomes won't be the same. And what I mean by that is, is that if you go back to the 70s, we had double back-to-back -back uh, recessions as we had this inflationary spike going on. And, and, and that's not surprising because if inflation goes up and prices are going up and people can't afford to pay it, they contract their spending. That leads to an economic recession, right? So those, those do definitely play hand in hand. And we could very well see this kind of this phenomenon of a very short cycle expansion. I'm not saying that I'm not saying this is going to be the case. Don't run out and start telling people, well, Lance says a recession's coming next year. I'm not saying that. But it is possible that because the recession that happened in 2020 was artificial in nature. And what I mean by that is that you know, we shut down the economy. We caused the recession. It wasn't a naturally occurring recession of a slowdown of the business cycle. We shut the economy down. But we didn't solve the underlying problems of the economy itself that recessions normally deal with. In fact, we exacerbated them by flooding the system with liquidity. We've exa actually exacerbated some of the problems that recessions normally remove from the system. And that's the whole benefit of a recession is it kind of resets the table for the next economic growth cycle. So when we look at this and think about what's happening, you know, it's very possible that we could see the economy actually slipped back into a recession in a normal business cycle because of inflationary pressures. Inflation rises sharply, curtails spending. You get, a, you get an economic slowdown because of the curtailment of spending because of higher prices, and you kind of go through that cycle. So that certainly is not outside the realm of possibility. You shouldn't discount that entirely. Just say, oh, well, you just had a recession, can't have another one. It's possible because the recession was artificial and it was not allowed to work the process of a recession, which is, and particularly when it comes to markets, reverting valuations. So certainly risk out there. But again, a lot of this inflation that you're going to see in the near term over the next couple of months in particular, you're going to see a very sharp spike in inflation. That's going to be caused by this, a lot of this is going to be this year over year comparison. So it's going to be important when you look at these numbers to make sure and step back and go, okay, what was inflation last year? Where are we down? And what's the trend of inflation? And, and try to keep these things in, in somewhat of a perspective because some of the numbers you're going to see are, are going to be quite mind-boggling because they're going to be so big. But again, those are likely going to fade fairly quickly because once we get into the latter part of this year, so we get into September, October, November, December, where the economy was already starting to reopen, those year-over-year -year comparisons are going to drop rather sharply. And then when we get into 2022, we're going to be heading back towards trend growth of inflation somewhere around 2.2 to 2.5%, somewhere around there. So again, and, and this, is, this is the risk that the Fed runs right now. The Fed's playing a very delicate balance. They're worried about inflation because if inflation spikes too much, then that does curtail the economy and it causes a recession. That's why they're worried about inflation. So the game that they're running right now is saying, hey, we're doing QE, $120 billion a month. And hopefully that'll be enough that we can let inflation run hot here for a few months. Even if it slows the economy down some, that's okay because we're providing enough liquidity to offset that risk temporarily. And then hopefully that rate of inflation will die off 
and we won't have to raise rates or reduce our QE. So kind of we can kind of navigate our way through it. That's their plan, right? That's what they hope anyway. The question will be whether or not that they have the stomach for it or that they don't make a policy mistake by starting to, you know, they've already started talking about potentially tapering QE or they don't actually flinch and, and hike rates into a temporary bout of inflation, if it, if it indeed, indeed is that. Now, look, there's arguments out there that says this inflation can be permanent for quite a while longer. And that's certainly got some valid cases to it, right? There, there are quite a few uh, voices out there saying this inflation is here to stay for a while because of all the shortages, right? We've got semiconductor shortages. We've got auto shortages. We've got shortages of food. We've got shortages of everything, right? Because of the supply chain shutdowns, et cetera. Which their argument is, is because of that, we can have this inflation stick around for longer than we expect. And there's certainly validity to that argument. Do not discount that argument because they're right. The shortage is a problem. So the, the, the shortages become an issue of how fast we can get those production lines back up to work and start meeting the demand that is currently available in the markets because of this reopening that we're going through. So if inflation stays around longer and runs hotter than the Fed expects, then the Fed gets themselves into a potential trap of hiking rates. And that's where the potential policy mistake comes in. And so the, the question is really timing. What the Fed's hoping on is that they can keep rates at zero and keep doing QE and we'll have a very short spike in inflation and it'll fade back in latter part of this year, first part of next year, we'll be back towards more, more kind of trend line 2% inflation. The, the risk, as I said, is that inflation runs too hot and because of the shortage runs longer than the Fed can stomach. That's where the potential policy risk comes in that impacts the markets. We'll see what happens. Come back from the break. We're going to talk a little bit about picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Um, article out today on the website talking specifically about this. So simply go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, you can download the article, read it for yourself. But I'll go through a couple of the charts that we have, and uh, we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. I'm Real Science Roberts. Don't go away. Should I stay or should I go? It's always TCC. You're happy when I'm on my knees. One day it's fine and next is back. So if you want me off your back, well, come on and let me know. Should I stay or should I go? The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care june 24th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the real investment show and welcome back to 
Joe's in the morning. I'm your host, Lance Robert. Talking about picking up pennies in front of a steamroller, I got a tweet a couple weeks back. It says, I take my hat off to you that you're able to continue picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Reading your newsletter, I scratch my head in amazement at your ability to increase your exposures in a market you admit is the most expensive ever. He's right. Um, you know, the market is very expensive. And what we've been talking about here over the last couple of weeks is after we had taken money off the, you know, and this is kind of the party missed. He says he reads the newsletter, but he kind of missed the fact that we had reduced exposure about a month and a half ago. And we were waiting for this signal that we were going through to give us an opportunity to add exposure. So as our money flow buy signal started to get closer to triggering, we started adding a little bit of exposure to our portfolios. Now we were a little bit early, um, but it's all worked out okay now. Um, but as we as we talked about in our article, if everyone if everybody sees this, it's still a bubble. You know, there is a very massive overvaluation in markets currently, no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean that we just simply go sit into cash and and not do anything. In fact. You know, if we take about valuations as an example, right, um, one of the measures that I like to use the most is price to sales. And the reason I like price to sales or price to revenue, however you want to classify it, is that that's what happens at the top line, right? If I go out and sell a widget, I get a dollar for my widget. That's, that's my sales. Now, I can do a lot of stuff to manufacture and manipulate my bottom line earnings, Per share, right? Because I can do stock buybacks. I can do accounting gimmicks. I can do cookie jar reserves. I can do all kinds of stuff accounting-wise to manipulate my bottom line profitability one way or the other. It's hard to kind of manipulate that top line sell number. So that's why I like price to sales. And right now, we've got price to sales at the highest level on record ever in the world, right? Three. We're running almost three times price to sales right now in the markets. And historically, going back, whenever you get really above about one and a half, your rate of return in the market over the next decade is below zero. So very, very overvalued currently in the markets, no doubt about that. But, you know, this is the problem with valuations. Valuations are a horrible market timing device. Um, one thing we, that you know, people talk about quite often is Schiller's CAPE ratio which is the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. So uh, this is looking at earnings at the bottom line of this of the statement. But, you know, historically going back to 1900, you know, overvaluations of markets have always led to very poor returns over the next decade or so. And currently we're trading at 36 times trailing earnings, which is the second highest level ever on record. And the problem with valuations as a timing metric, right, is that if I just sold out of my portfolio and went to cash every time we hit historic valuations of 23 to 25 times earnings, I could have avoided a lot of the downturns in the markets. But I would have also missed out on a lot of the potential gains because markets can remain overvalued for a very long period of time. So while valuations are good at telling us about what our forward returns are going to be, they're not a great indicator to tell us when to get in or get out of market. So, you know, I get the idea that, you know, a, you know the, the problem of short-term investing versus long-term outlooks. 
And a lot of people get confused about how do we marry those two together. Well, we understand that the long-term value, the, the long-term valuation is a problem for markets, but we got to make money now, right? There's opportunities now to make money. And, and that's the important thing that we want to do. And, you know, if we take a look at, you know, value versus growth just over the last 12 years, what we've seen is, is that growth has dramatically outperformed value. So, you know, this has just been one of those dynamics of markets because of all this Fed, Fed liquidity, all this stuff coming in is that that's been where the market has migrated to, right? We've had just a huge risk-taking environment over the course of the last 12 years because of zero interest rates, massive amounts of Fed liquidity. And during this entire time frame, valuations have remained above 23, 25 times earnings. So you would have missed out on this entire, you know, 700% advance in the growth index if you had just been sitting in cash, right? And so that's why value, look, valuations are very important. Don't get me wrong. But you know, they're, they're terrible devices in terms of telling you when to invest or when to be more cautious. And that's where technical analysis really comes into play. And this is why even as any investor, you need to have a very basic understanding of technical analysis. If you're going to invest money in the markets, you've got to have a basic understanding of technical analysis. And, and because this is what can help you mitigate risk in your portfolios over time. And look, a lot of people dismiss technical analysis as voodoo, right? It's, um, and that's primarily due to a lack of understanding of how they work. You know, they, they, they read somebody on the internet that says, oh, the, you know, this is my technical signal says this, and you've got to get out of the markets, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't work. So they go, see, technicals don't work. Told me to get out of the market, and the market just went up. Nothing works 100% of the time, ever. And we've talked about this before, you know, equating it to baseball. I mean, even the, you know, Hall of Fame baseball players that bat, you know, consistently and make it to Hall of Fame, their batting average is 40%. And what you need to be successful in the market is a technical indicator that's right 70% of the time, Right? Nothing's nothing's going to work 100% of the time. The trick is understanding that when something's not working, it doesn't mean your system's broken. It just means that the market isn't responding currently, and so you have to make some adjustments. So, and I want to be clear what we're talking about here. We're not talking about day trading, okay? We're not talking about being all in the market or all out of the market one day to the next or one position to the next. We're talking about managing risk over time. We're talking about using technical analysis to increase or decrease exposure moderately, you know, doing the, as we've equated back to gardening previously, kind of like the weeding and the pruning of the garden. If you don't, if you don't harvest your bounty, it'll just rot on the vines. If you don't weed the garden, the weeds will take over the garden. So managing a good garden and making sure you've got a healthy producing garden requires that you water it, you fertilize it, you prune it, you weed it, you make sure that it's, that it's healthy, right? The same thing goes for your portfolio. And so a lot of what we talk about is just, just that weeding and pruning process. We talk, uh, uh, talk a lot on uh, our website, rapro.net, where we post all of our trades and our analysis. We talk a lot on there about, hey, we're taking some profits here. We're increasing some exposure over here. We're rebalancing this over here. That's that weeding and pruning process that goes on all the time. 
in portfolios. And, and that's the way you should be managing your portfolio. But importantly, as opposed to a lot of the mainstream commentary, technical analysis is fallible. But it doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means that sometimes markets do things that you are certainly not expecting it to do. And, you know, if we take a look at a long-term chart of the S&P 500 and use very basic signals, you know, we can structure a methodology to help avoid some of that downside risk. And again, it doesn't mean be all in or all out, right? It just means that there are times where you want to have more exposure and times you want to have less exposure. And, you know, are you going to miss some of the upside? Yes, you are. Because signals aren't going to get you in right at the bottom. They're not going to get you out right at the top. So you're going to wind up, you know, taking a little bit of hit at the top. You're going to miss a bunch of the downside. And then you're going to miss a little bit of the, of the recovery. And that really goes back to our kind of our Rothschild's rule of investing, which is, you know, we want the 80% in the middle. I'll give up the 10% at the top and the 10% at the bottom. I want that 80% in the middle. I either want to capture the 80% of that middle advance it's okay if I get out early, right? I get a big bulk of the advance, and I want to miss about 80% of that downside when it occurs. So if I'm a little bit late getting out, that's okay. I just want to miss a big bulk of that downside when it occurs. If I get a little bit early, that's okay, right? But it's it's protecting that capital and the downside that matters over time. So what you need is simply just a very simplistic method of technical analysis. And look, there's there's a billion ways to do it. I mean, everybody does it differently. You can't use my methods because I understand my methods, right? You've got to de- you've kind of got to develop something that works for you. But keep it simple. All you need is a couple moving averages and, you know, a, a moving average crossover or something like that. Something simplistic. Don't get too complicated. The more complicated you get, the more signals that you overlay with with charts and those type of things, it's very easy to get lost off into the weeds. But the more signals you use, the more the the probability rises you're going to start to get uh, analysis paralysis. In other words, you'll start getting a bunch of conflicting signals, and so you're not going to do anything because you've got too many signals that are crossing each other and not really telling you what you're going to do, and you just don't do anything. So keep it simple. You know, it's like, (laughs) you know. It's the old KISS principle. And if you keep it simple, all you're trying to do is just mitigate some of the risk. So, yes, back to our you know, original comment. Yeah, we recently added exposure to markets because markets were oversold short term. And we're looking for a tradable opportunity to make a little bit of money here. And we'll take profits again in the next couple of weeks when this rally gets over. Now, does that mean we're going to sell everything? No, that's not what that means. It means we're going to go from, you know, 60% exposure to our portfolio to 70% of exposure to our portfolio. The rest is in bonds, whatever they're in. And then our equities will pull back to 60%. It's just that method of, of increasing, reducing risk. It's like driving a car. I'm not going to drive with my foot full down on the accelerator. I'm going to slow down every now and then. Be right back after the break. Yeah! 
Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at Real investmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care june 24th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show morning it is of course uh tuesday as we get ready to uh roll into the rest of the week futures are pointing up this morning after a bevy of fed officials have now come out and said hey we're not we're not even thinking about thinking about potentially thinking about hiking rates so (laughs) yeah inflation's transient we're not worried about it and uh, that's giving uh kind of some lift to, to the markets this morning and again not surprising here i mean the markets have been under a good bit of pressure lately worrying about inflation and the Fed certainly does doesn't want to get put into a box here. So, um, you know, not surprising they're coming out issuing some pretty dovish statements on the overall markets. But again, this is just kind of you know the 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 way the Fed works, right? Um, talked about this before. The, you know, a big chunk of their monetary policy is verbal policy, where it's just what they say and what the markets interpret is the important part, right? So as long as they keep putting out that method, or I shouldn't say that method, as long as they see that message, <laughs> we'll spit that one out, then that helps support markets. And this is really kind of, you know, some of the, you know, kind of kind of the method that the Fed has used now over the last decade to, you know, keep pushing asset prices higher. Just the promise of more doesn't mean they actually have to do anything. Good example of this was back in March of 2020. They talked about buying corporate junk bonds. They were going to start buying junk ETFs, junk bond ETFs, to support the corporate bond market. They bought very little of it. I mean, like just a few hundred million. I mean, they didn't do much of anything in terms of buying corporate bond ETFs, uh, high-yield junk ETFs. But just the fact that they talked about it helped heal that market. People were like, oh, they're going to buy junk ETFs? Okay, great. I'll, I'll go buy junk bonds. And that helps support that market. So it's not necessarily about what they actually do. It's just what they say they might do, right? That's That's important. Um, but anyway, that's really kind of what's pushing it this morning. Uh, also, Amazon is talking about buying MGM Studios. Of course, they're the makers of all the James Bond movies. So if, if you're a Bond fanatic, that will now become an Amazon property if, they, if this deal goes through. But, you know, this is not surprising. Look, movie studios are on the ropes because they haven't been able to produce movies because of COVID. And all these streaming companies are desperate for content stream with because now there's so much competition now you've got amazon prime you've got netflix you got hulu you got disney plus you got paramount you got discovery channel you got you know all these um different streaming choices so everybody's fighting over the subscriber 
And the irony of all this, if you'll remember when all this started with Netflix was, is, hey, cut the cord and unbundle, right? Everybody was like, hey, you need to unbundle your services with Comcast and or whatever your cable provider is. Why pay for a bundle? Just go buy, you know, just go a la carte and just buy. Well, the problem is, is now that you go a la carte, <laughs> you subscribe to all these services, you're spending more money than you were spending on cable, right? So everybody's fighting over the consumer. And which all comes down to a content war. Who can produce more and better, importantly, content? And that really puts these providers of services like Disney and Amazon and Netflix in competition with each other to buy production studios. They've got to buy the, produ- you know, it's great to have the streaming service, but you got to have the content. So you've got to go buy the content. And you know, this is, you know, one thing that Disney has is they've got a lot of production capability with their studios. Marvel, Star Wars, you know, they've got a lot of production capability to produce a variety of original content. That gives them an edge. Hulu, as an example, doesn't really have that edge, right? They're requiring people to watch content that were produced by the people that they have now acquired the rights to. Netflix is producing a lot of their own content. Amazon was producing some content, but not to a huge degree. This acquisition of MGM gives them the ability. It gives them both a library of content to push to their subscribers, but also an ability to produce a lot of new content. So this, you know, the, the acquisition of studios and producers of content are going to be a thing, you know, going forward as these streaming services become more numerous. And then eventually what will happen here is that we will go through another consolidation phase. As consumers get exhausted from all the different content choices, they'll start to narrow their subscriptions to a few providers. And then what we'll go through is a consolidation process of providers. So Disney will buy somebody else and Amazon will buy somebody else and some some point Netflix will buy somebody and eventually we'll, we'll wind up with fewer and fewer services. And then what will happen is we'll eventually wind up with bundling <laughs> to where one service will say, tell you what, subscribe to Netflix and we'll also give you Disney Plus and Amazon for the same price, right? So you, you pay 20 bucks. And you get everything, right? So we'll eventually get back to that level. If you don't believe me, that's the case. If you're like, well, that'll never happen. Do you remember AT&T? Yeah. We broke up Ma Bell. And now they're all back together again. It's like, let's break up the gang. And then let's go on a reunion tour. <laughs> so. But the difference is now you can virtually call anywhere in the world for free. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I, was, when I first started with you, Back in two thousand and one ish, yes, when we we started uh, doing the the business talk radio on another station in the early years of the century. In the early years, as the century turned, <laughs> but back then you actually paid for long distance, and we actually said that at some point within the next five years you would no longer pay for long distance, and within five years we were no longer paying for long distance. They because laughed so, at us. I know they're like that's ridiculous. Yeah, now you can call anywhere for free. And <laughs> at some point, it'll get even cheaper. I don't know how, but <laughs> they'll pay you to call. They'll pay you to call. 
<laughs> so but anyway, but yeah, that's how we're going to get there. But this is kind of an interesting deal. Uh, like I said, Amazon is is poised to announce this acquisition of Metro Goldwyn Meyer uh, Studio as soon as tomorrow, or actually today. Sorry, today is Tuesday. Um, about nine billion dollars uh, for the purchase. So again, it's just money. You know, just it's just a, it's just money with a B on it. And really, when you think about how much we spend in the, at the government. Nine billion is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. Chump change. Speaking of that, the CBO has just now come out with their debt projections through 2050, which suggests that the the federal balance sheet, of which the Fed will own 30 percent, will approach 150 trillion dollars by 2050. So, you know, it's just debt. We're at 30 trillion. We can barely grow the economy. I don't know what's going to happen at 150 trillion, but it don't look good, folks. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just suggesting. And this is based on the current run rate of spending, right? So we've got to, and, and what this is, just a trend line projection of the debt through 2050 if we keep doing the things that we're doing and keep doing, you know, these, you know, bailouts and supports and, uh, stimulus plans and all this other stuff is that we're just going to continue to have more and more dependency on debt. And when you're already absorbing more than 100% of your revenue just to pay for mandatory spending. Now, what's your mandatory spending? That's interest on the debt and your social welfare programs. That's mandatory. You pay that regardless of anything else. Everything else that you do inside the government, education, defense, everything else, that's all discretionary spending and requires debt to be issued to do that. So we're already running a deficit every single year just to fund mandatory spending, right? We've got to go into debt just to keep social welfare in in place. Then we're going to have to spend more debt just to fund ongoing operations, which increase at 8% a year because we don't run a budget. We just do continuing resolutions, which increase the budget of the government by 8% every year. Then anything else you want to do, like infrastructure spending or more bailouts or more stimulus. That's on top of that. So every single year, you're racking up more and more and more debt just to cover your spending because your revenues aren't growing at a rate fast enough to pay for all the stuff you want to spend money on. And that's why you keep getting lower and lower growth rates of the economy over time. And that's why if you take a look at this CBO projection of debt, which I'll write an article on this, if you take that trend line of that growth of debt and compare that to the to the historical trend line of growth of GDP and how much we'll be spending on GDP to or how much we'll be spending in debt to generate a dollar's worth of growth in GDP, you're talking about somewhere around 2030, 2040 will be growing at less than 1% growth. Now, that's really hard to grow an economy and create economic prosperity when you're growing at less than 1%. And there's not much that says that that, that is going to change anytime soon. There's, there's nothing in history that suggests that more and more debt creates economic growth. There's plenty of evidence in history that suggests just the opposite. So... You know, these are the things that eventually, you know, we're going to have to think about. And, you know, I've, I was just talking to uh, having a conversation recently with one of our congressmen talking about the definition of infrastructure. <laughs> you know, this has been one of the debates up in Washington. How do you define infrastructure? Infrastructure is easy. 
If I can invest money and it pays a stream of cash flows that pays for itself over time, that's infrastructure. If it doesn't, and it requires a government credit in order to get people to use it, that's not infrastructure. Pretty easy to define, pretty easy to implement, and pretty easy to achieve a positive outturn goal if you really think about it. All right, wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our article is out, picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. It's on the website right now at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. While you're there, send your comments, questions, emails. Always happy to help you out. Our latest newsletter is out as well. That's all on the, on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow for uh, Hump Day. See you then. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.